As we continue in 1 John, I want to encourage you to read it as an entire letter. How many of you have ever gotten a letter and read it in bits and pieces only? Two. Some of you don't even know what a real letter is, okay? It's written out, and you get it, and you read the thing, and hopefully the handwriting is good enough. But... A letter is a unit, and I want to encourage you as you read through the book of 1 John over and over, if you read it as a unit, you'll get the flow and you'll get the themes and the things that matter to John. Uh, And so I would encourage you to read it, if you can, daily, if not two, three, four times a week, and then you'll get the idea of what he's going. As you read it, there are certain themes that come out, and as Gary led us today, by the way, One of the ways of meditating, there are various ways to meditate, but one of the ways of meditating on God's Word is to think through what you're reading and talk to the author about it. Any of you ever had the privilege of being at a poetry reading with the author or a book reading, a book signing when the author is there, and they read an excerpt of their book, and you get this kind of a feel for the author and the book when they read their own work. And the really cool thing is you can ask questions and interact with them about the book. What were you thinking here? What were you trying to say? The Bible is like that. We have the privilege of interacting with the author. And sometimes I think we do it this way. We pray, then we read the Bible, and then we say, Lord, bless our study. They're disjointed. What if we took the word and said, Lord, I'm gonna, I want to talk to you about what you wrote here. Let's interact about this. And so Gary was modeling for that, uh, that for us this morning, that we would interact with what we're reading, and that's one of the great ways of meditating on the Word of God. And one of those themes that has captured my attention as we're reading through the book of 1 John comes up again here. And now, little children, abide in Him. <clears throat> abide in Him. This is a a typical Johannine word. He uses it way more than anybody else. He uses the word abide nine times in his gospel. How many times does he use it in this little letter? Don't be Googling. 16 times in these five chapters, John encourages us to abide. And twice in his second letter. Abiding is a key thought for John. So it's a key thought for him. It's a big deal for us. Should we understand it? Good. So what does it mean? Hmm, It's quiet in here. What does the word abide mean? To live. What else? To remain. To have residence in. to, To participate in. Now, what's the difference, and I'm going to eliminate a bunch of my first service sermon because it was packed with too much stuff. You know, sometimes I study too long and have too much to say, and I just try and catch up and talk too fast. Has that ever happened to you, John Thurman? No. So, we're going to simplify it here. What's the difference between a house and a home? You live in a home. You reside there. You abide there. You could own a house, and if nobody lives there, it's not a home. Is that fair enough? Right? And so when people advertise, real estate agents advertise, they don't advertise houses. They advertise potential homes. This is where you could live. This is where your life could be. This is where you can abide, right? 
Do you remember when you were younger walking into your grandpa's or grandma's home? Mine always smelled of fresh, fresh break. Fresh. Bread she made that day. Freshly baked, thank you. And cinnamon rolls. Every day my grandmother would bake fresh homemade bread and cinnamon rolls. And I got to tell you, I pretty much love walking into that house. In fact, I loved walking into the neighborhood because you could smell it down the street. And you'd walk in and it was like, I'm home. And my mother was very much like that. She had to work while I was growing up because it was just she and I kind of when I was growing up. And so she worked all the time. But guess how she made her living? As a cook and a baker at schools. So I got to tell you, I love the smell of fresh cinnamon rolls and homemade bread. And guess what my friends loved? The fresh cinnamon rolls and homemade bread. They would come to our house all the time. Hey, let's go. Is your mom home? No, she's working. How about your grandma? And before we could drive, we could ride our bikes to my grandmother's house. And after we could drive, we would speak, I mean, drive to my grandmother's house. The difference between a house and a home is that we abide there. But don't we all know people who have houses or residence that is their, maybe their mailing address, but it's not where they abide? How about this illustration? <clears throat> you ever seen a couple and maybe the house, or the house, the husband or the wife, it's an address, but it's not where they abide. They live there but they're not really present when they're there. Technically, it's where they live, but they live unattached. But they might abide in their shop or in their basement or in a book or in a TV screen or in a computer monitor in a fantasy world in a relationship that's totally artificial. They live there, but they don't abide there. Or maybe there's a teenager who lives in a home, but their entire life is totally unattached from the rest of the family. They sort of sleep there. They may eat there, but they don't abide there. They just, it's their address. What John and Jesus are saying as they use this word abiding is don't Be like that. He's saying dwell there, stay attached, stay involved, stay engaged with. Actually dwell or be immersed or immersed in this relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've known people and I get there from time to time. I know all about Jesus, but abiding in Jesus and having his life flow in and through is a totally different gig. This might be a great title for the letter, Abide in Christ. Now, by the way, whose responsibility is that? Ours. This is a command. 
And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him. Dwell in him. Interestingly enough, it's our responsibility. If we are not abiding in Christ, if we are not experiencing all that Christ has for us, whose fault is that? It's not his. We're going to read a little later. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. The question is, are we abiding in him? And, and there's kind of a, I was thinking about this week, there's a negative and a positive aspect to this abiding. The first thing is, it's negative. There are things that have to go, right? There are things that compete with our relationship with Christ that may have to go. Some of them are sinful issues. We'll look at that a little later when we look at a passage in the book of Hebrews. Some of them are just competing for affection. When you got married, were there things that had to be given up in your life? I remember my, wa- my wife, my mother kind of saying, as I was dating my wife, she lived out in the Spokane Valley, I lived up by Albee Stadium, and she said, man, that's like another country, it seems so far away then. And she said, you know, she's starting to take over your life. Uh-huh. And your point, mom? She goes, serious, huh? I said, I'm trying to convince her. It should be. (laughs) Abiding, focusing on means there are things that have to go. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated or controlled by anything. He says again in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. There are things that if I'm going to focus on my relationship with Christ that have to be put aside or minimized. How many hours a day do you have? This is not a trick question. 24. There's a little tick last week. We had 23. We actually had 24. We just changed our clocks, right? But when you decide to follow Christ, how many extra hours a day are you given? What's up with that gig? Shouldn't, if we're serious about God, we get extra time in our schedules? When you were dating your spouse, did you get it? And some of you were thinking you get extra time. In fact, you tried to make extra time by staying up really, really late. So where is the time to focus on God, to abide, abide in Him, come from? <clears throat> you make it. And in order to make it, you have to give some things up, correct? I'm going to baptize you guys and sprinkle you here and wake you up. Where does it come from? <clears throat> A shift in priorities. Now, we live in the Northwest, do we not? Men. Well, the truth is, and ladies. I was at a pastor's retreat. I don't know if I said this. uh, At a pastor's conference a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about their men's ministry stuff. And one guy said, well, we have a thing called you kill it, we'll grill it. And I said, that's women's ministry in Idaho. (laughs) Men are trophy hunters. Women are meat hunters. That's the difference. But they're all hunting. 
Okay? <clears throat> I have no idea what I was saying. Certain Thank you. There are priorities. Men. Men and women. But men. Do you have time? How many, wait, let me ask. How many of you like to hunt? Do you have time to hunt? How many of you like to fish? Do you have time to fish? How many of you like motorcycle riding? <clears throat> Whoa. Do you have time? And by the way, do you have money for those things? How many of you like to snow ski? Everybody put your hand Do I have time to snow ski? Somehow I find it. And I also find budget for new gear. Why? Priority. You got to have it in order to use it. My wife often says, man, it is so hard to be a man in the Northwest. Just to keep up with the gear is such a pressure. And I said, I'm glad you finally understand the suffering that we go through. You get the point, don't you? We focus on what we want. The negative th side of abiding is you don't have time to do it all. You got to choose. And we will choose what matters. Abide in Him. Which leads to the, the positive aspect of abiding. John is saying, make Christ the priority. Rearrange. Because of the privilege of who we are, we get the privilege of abiding. The value of our new relationship changes our priority. It literally takes over our lives. It owns us. And then Paul goes on to say this, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be hasn't yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John ties this thought of abiding with eternity. I don't think we think about eternity enough. I think we're engrossed with here and now, with our jobs, with our kids, with our families, with our staff. But we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 17, that this world is passing away with all its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Who's going to get my snow skis when I'm gone? Somebody. <laughs> They're pointing at you, Beckham. Nope, because you'll want new ones. Who's going to get our house? You know, how many of us talk about owning houses and land? How many of you own your own house? This is a trick question. Truth is, you just prepaid your rent. Because when you're dead, somebody else is going to take it. You don't own it. You're not taking it with you. We don't own our stuff. This is all passing away. And what, what John is saying is this. Little children abide in him because he's coming back. And when he's coming back, you don't want to be like those who have left, who have walked away. Uh, you don't want to be embarrassed by saying, oh, man. 
And he's comparing them with those who have rejected and walked away from Christ. Abide in him because he's coming. And John makes two observations about the coming of Christ. There will be those who will be ashamed. And there will be those who are rewarded and honored. I want to encourage you to do so. I keep giving you homework, and I know you don't do it, but I'm going to give it to you anyhow. I would encourage you to consider doing a study on the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about salvation and what we get, but we don't think through much the kingdom and what part we play in the kingdom and what it will be like when he returns and establishes his permanent final kingdom. In Matthew, John says this, or Matthew, John says, Matthew says this in Matthew, and Jesus, repeatedly he says this, and Jesus went from town to town preaching the gospel of what? The kingdom. Somebody asked me the other day, what's all the emphasis on the kingdom now? Where'd the gospel go? And I said, what do you think the gospel is? It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's that we get invited to be participants in the kingdom. I don't think we talk enough about eternity. Jesus talked a lot about the coming kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 25, particularly, he talks about getting ready. He tells a parable of the ten bridesmaids. Remember, ten had enough oil for their lamps to be trimmed, and ten didn't, and those who didn't were cast out. In the second parable, he talks about the parable of the talents. Remember that one? Jesus gave five to one guy, two to one guy, and one to one right? And suddenly he's, the, the master shows back up and uh, he said, what have you done with what I gave you? The steward who was given the five talents had doubled it. He had invested it for the sake of the master's work. <clears throat> he had doubled it. And what does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Boom. What, is, what happens to the one with two talents? He has doubled it, he's invested it or whatever, he's used his master's money wisely for the master's priorities, and he, and he doubles it, and what does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant, he who has been trusted with little will be entrusted with much. And then the guy with one talent, whatever the talent is, well, uh, the master says, what have you done with it? And he says, what? I buried it. I knew you were a harsh taskmaster and you'd come back and if I lost the talent, you'd be dipped. That's a rough translation. And what does the master say? Away from me, you wicked, selfish, perverse servant. And he took from the one with one and he gave it to the one who had developed ten. And Jesus says, this is what it will be like in a kingdom. What's he saying, people? Don't sit on your laurels. I've called you for a purpose. Live in light of eternity. Live in light of eternity. And then he says in verse 29, 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, I'm not talking about fake righteousness. If you could have seen the video that Jason was going to, uh, that he wanted to show, uh, send us today. Where he is, there are Muslim calls to prayer and Coptic calls to prayer, and they have these prayer towers, and they broadcast these prayers, which are rote prayers throughout the city five times a day, and everyone is called to pray. And they think by repeating prayers in words they don't understand that they will be right with God. I'm not talking about outward righteousness, where we paint a face on and we live as if we're abiding in Christ. I'm talking about the real deal. What John is saying, if you find people who live really authentic, genuine, righteously, you know that they're the Lord's. And in keeping with the theme of 1 John, this is how you know you're his if God is changing you from the inside out. In Galatians chapter 5, I'm just going to read this real quickly. It's a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. The works of the flesh are evident, obvious. They stand out. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? What are those descriptions of? The world, the flesh. Now, he's not saying that you never get angry. That's not what he's saying. But if this characterizes a life that's not a life from above. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Can you tell the difference between those two lives? Yes. Is it obvious? Painfully so, right? In our growth group the other night, we were discussing this passage, and I was talking about it with some uh, younger next two generations in our family. Grandkids. And we were talking about the, the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit is obvious. And, and so when, <laughs> when they were beginning to fight and be selfish, I said... Flesh or spirit? Flesh or spirit? They didn't like the question much. It's obvious. And what I'm saying is that if we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, if we are abiding in Christ, the general lifestyle we have takes on the priority in life of our gene pool. We live like our Father lives. We value what our Father values. And I will tell you that we can fake it for a while, but eventually what is comes out. Any of you ever done any premarital counseling? God's calling. <laughs> any of you ever done any premarital counseling? Okay. What is one of the truths that we talk about when you do premarital counseling? 
What? Unequally yoked. Okay, that's one of the things. But here's another one. Every woman thinks she's going to change a man. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. If you think that when you married, you're going to make him what you really want, but he's not really want, he's not really what you want now, but you can change him when you marry him. I just want you to know, he doesn't come with a return policy. This is craziness. And guys will be on their best behavior, sometimes women will be, and sometimes guys will, will be, for a while. But what they are eventually really comes out. Yes? One of the things in premarital counseling we used to say is you should make somebody go on a 24-hour road trip and they can't stop. When they get gas, they just have to be awake for 24 hours and shift drivers. One of the other things we said is they should have to cook for a weekend camp together. Because nothing ever goes right there. <laughs> and we broke a couple couples up having that last assignment. What is comes out. That's what he's saying. And then we get to 1 John 3, 1, and it's one of the best verses in Scripture. Not like the other ones are bad. It's one of my favorites. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. That word see means behold, gaze at it, be astonished by it. This is awesome. This is the kind of of love that no one has ever seen. This agape love is altogether different than any other kind of love. It's absolutely unique. What other God, what other being will give His only Son for the likes of you and me? Paul said in Romans, come on, somebody might die for somebody who's good enough, but something, who would die for unrighteous people? But God loved us. God demonstrates his love in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This phrase, this totally unique phrase, see what kind of love. The other place you see this is in Matthew 18, 20, 27. Matthew 8, 27. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and the storm blows up. And Jesus says, shut up, see. Actually, what he says is, peace be still, which is interesting because what he did is took his peace and bestowed it on the sea. The peace of the sea came from him. It's the same peace he gives to us. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. And what did the disciples say? <laughs> that was cool. Behold, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were awestruck. They'd never met anybody like him. They'd never seen anybody like him because there is nobody like him. It's the same phrase John says. Behold what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. Your first assignment this week is to abide in this 
truth. Stop what you're doing. Stop. Get off the treadmill. Or get on a chairlift. Kind of the same. But while you're on a chairlift, there's not much to do. <laughs> you're kind of waiting, right? Stop. We focus on so many things. We worry about so many things. We're trying to control so many things. What John is saying is, abide in this truth. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And if that is true, what will he withhold from us? Nothing. Nothing. And then he goes on to say, and you haven't seen the half of it yet. Because when we see him, we'll be like him. Now, I want you to know, that doesn't mean we're going to be part of the Trinity. We're not going to become God. What it does mean is, first of all, this carcass is done. Any of you get up in pain? Any of you live in pain? Any of you walk in pain? Some of you are just a pain. <laughs> You're welcome. This carcass is wearing out, and if you don't think so, if you're above 50, look in the mirror. It's like a comedy movie, right? <laughs> Talking the other day about how good we used to be skiing. And all I said was, it didn't hurt nearly as bad. We were skiing with a couple of youngsters, and they're going off a jump, and you hear them land, and it just goes, boom! And I'm like... If you knew what that's going to feel like in 40 years, you might not do it. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, you would. It's pretty fun. But not only do we get a new carcass, when the flesh leaves, we lose our sinfulness. Do you know that everything you do is tainted by sin? Even the good things we do sometimes are selfishly done. Right? You guys love your spouses perfectly and unselfishly? Liar, liar, pants on fire, Charlie. <laughs> as good as our relationships are, we're never quite satisfied because we're self-centered to our core. It's, by the way, why people get divorced. A friend of mine was talking with a couple this week. They love Jesus. They've been raised in Christians' home. Christian homes. They know it's wrong to get divorced, so they're not going to get divorced. They're going to stay together, but they can't stand each other. Well, we're not going to get divorced because that's sin. <laughs> you think the way you're living is not? It's that whole abiding thing again. Well, I'm married, but I'm keeping myself and don't... That's what we do with Jesus. When we get to heaven, I don't have to live life selfishly. And I will tell you, this is a maximum. Not always. But 90% of our disappointments are based on our selfishness. What we desire becomes an expectation. What we expect becomes a demand. And when God doesn't meet us, we're frustrated. And some of it is just that we're human and we live in a busted 
world. When we see him, we'll be like him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I was having a conversation with a guy a while ago about heaven, and we were talking about what it is, what it won't be, and all the speculation. And we know quite a bit about heaven from the word of God. Actually, this is what we know. It's there. And there will be no mourning. There will be no sin. Jesus said, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back to get you. I'm going to prepare a custom-made home for you, and when I get it done, I'll be back. There's a whole lot of heaven about, a whole lot about heaven that I don't know. And as we're talking about this guy said, listen, whatever you think about heaven, forget it because it's not nearly good enough. Not heaven's not good enough. Your idea about heaven is not. Here's what the future gives us. One, hope or assurance. Philippians 1 says, 6 says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God loved us enough to send his son to adopt us as children, is he going to leave us as orphans? Is he going to leave the job undone? No. No. When we see him, we'll be like him. By the way, part of that process, though, God loving us, adopting him, us as his children, does not mean God's in the process of raising spoiled brats. You ever been around young, you ever been around people who were raised as spoiled brats? What are they like as adults? Spoiled brats. God promises in Hebrews chapter 12 that he will discipline every child of his. He in conforms our character to him. It also brings endurance. Paul, uh, John says, listen, the world doesn't know you because it doesn't know him. You ever feel totally out of place in this world? You know why that is? Because we're totally out of place in this world. The fact that we are children of God is foreign to anybody who isn't one. They don't get it. They, they can't comprehend it. They, they're like, you're weird. You're stupid. You're, you're strange. You're aliens. Guess what? Yes. Yes. We're kind of like the island of misfit toys. We kind of don't fit here. And people apart from Christ really don't get it. Apart from him illuminating them, they won't. But knowing who we are and where we are going brings endurance, whether it's physical suffering, emotional suffering, frustration. We live in light of the day he will return. Maybe it'll be today. Makes me nervous. I still haven't found David Smith. My theology may have to change. He might be gone. And we're here. Bummer. Here's the other thing that it brings. And this is the point of verse 3. Focus. Focus. Everyone who has this hope purify himself as he is pure. What does the word purified mean? 
refined. It means eliminating impurities. What do you do when you purify water? You take out the impurities, right? What do you do when you purify gold? You take out the impurities. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Again, who's responsible? We are. We're purified by his blood, but we are to purify ourselves in light of his coming. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely that we may run with endurance the race set before us. There are sinful things that trip us up, but there are also things that are not sinful that own us too much, and you're going to bring those to the yard sale. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, God's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, now listen, listen, this is a command. For this reason, Make every effort. How many of you have heard that by faith and grace, takes to grow in our faith takes no effort on our part? It's all a gift of God. It is a gift of God. But what does Peter say when he says, make every effort? we got to participate. We have to be willing. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if, and only if, you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them in increasing measure is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Dallas Willard, I quoted in the blog this last week, but I want to say this because I think he summarizes it pretty well. Grace does not eliminate effort on our part. What it eliminates is earning. In other words, we cannot earn salvation, but we respond to it. Here's your assignment this week. Abiding in Christ means focusing on who he is, what he's done, and who we are. Behold what manner of love the Father has that we should be called children of God. I think some of us who have been around the church for a good time begin to forget how undeserving we are of the love and the blood 
of Christ. We tend to think, well, I'm not as bad as them, whoever them is. How much does God love us? What a privilege to be his children. What does it take to get us there? And what does it take to dwell there or abide there? I used an illustration in the first service, and I'm going to use it real quickly. I get to do weddings periodically. <clears throat> I'm doing less and less of them, but I get to do them in <clears throat> the couple stands up here, up there, in a grassy field. Part of my faith... Part of what I love is where they give the vows, you know, and uh, periodically they'll slip in some little other things. They'll give their vows and one of them will say the other one, I love you. And uh, unless they have a microphone on, nobody hears them, you know. And the responses are cool. One of the coolest I ever heard was this. I know, and I can't believe it. That's a great response. Because if up here they were standing there all googly-eyed, I love you. And the big Hulk of a guy goes, I know, you should. <laughs> Who wouldn't? You're lucky to have me. At that point, we better not get to the I do's. I just want you to know, at that point, she should turn and walk. I think sometimes when we think about God's love for us, that's our response. I love you, son. I know. Are you lucky to have me? You're a good, good father, and I'm a great, great son. Rather than, are you kidding me? You love me and want me as your child. Unbelievable. And so what I think abiding is, is stopping and dwelling on that. And I will tell you this, when we consciously, consistently do that, it's a game changer because all the wounds of other people dissipate, all the things that we think are wrong in life, this minimizes everything else. Does it not? Father, I pray that we will learn what it means to abide in you. To be loved, to be your children. Not just now, but for eternity. As good as a relationship with you is today, it doesn't hold a candle to what it will be like when the sin is out of my life. And I can rest in you and you alone without competing agendas, without rebellion in my heart, without selfishness in my life. Can't wait. Father, would you cause us to take to mind and to heart this week these truths, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.